conductive wire And you were so electric I had no say when you came so near And just passed right through me Hey everyone, welcome to Geekdom is Back, as is Alex DiVincenzo. We are talking all about Friday the 13th, the original, for anyone who is wondering. And we are definitely ready to talk about another horror movie. Alex, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing well right now. I just got over a terrible case of the hiccups, but through your genius remedy, I am now good to go. Yeah, so if anyone needs that remedy, it's just hold your breath and swallow three times, and usually that does the trick for me anyway. (laughs) Come for the geek talk, stay for the health remedies. Exactly. And Alex, I know you and I have been texting about horror movies and the fact that I have not watched a lot of the staples. So I was going back and forth with you, what, like five months ago now when I bought the box set on like Black (laughs) Friday. And I was just like, oh, wow, there's a lot of these. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm glad I can force you to watch them. You don't have to be that forceful about it, so, you know, it works out. And I also bought the Chucky box set, so, you know, maybe you'll be back on for one of those. But Ooh, all right, count me in. What is it about the original Friday the 13th that sort of appeals to you as far as these franchise horror movies go? Actually, I will say Friday the 13th is a rare franchise, not just in horror, but all of and you know, any film franchise, I would say, or for the vast majority of them anyway. I don't think the first movie is the best one. Uh, It's certainly important. It lays the groundwork for all the ones to come. But like if you ask anybody, you know, what their favorite Nightmare on Elm Street or Halloween or Hellraiser is, you know, almost every single time everyone's going to say the first one. Obviously, there's exceptions to that rule. But Friday the 13th, it's it's all over the place. Um, I'm a big fan of parts four and six, personally. Okay. I do like the first one a lot, too. It's it's in my probably top five of the series, of which there's 12 now. So, I mean, that's that's top 50%. Oh, wow. Here I thought there uh, were only 10. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's counting the remake and Freddy vs. Jason, so. Okay. We'll get there. We'll get there. But... I I do think the first one is, like I said, it's a lot of fun. It's important. It laid the groundwork, has a great cast, has a great score, which then, I mean, the composer did the majority of of the first, you know, the first eight of them. But really what it it comes down to, and I mean, the director will be the first one to admit it, it it was just a cash-in to make money on a low budget. People were excited about horror movies, particularly after the success of Halloween. So they were like, oh, we got some money. What are people paying to see? Let's make a horror movie. We can do that for cheap with, you know, no big names involved. And they did it, and Paramount put it out, and the rest is kind of history. Yeah, at the time, most of the people in this movie weren't big names. And then watching it now, I was like, oh, Kevin Bacon was in a Friday the 13th. And it's just funny to see people go on and become these bigger actors. And then you're like, oh, a lot of them did horror movies in like the 80s and 90s when they were getting their starts and sort of before they have their breakout performances. So that was fun to see. And you also have the fact that Tom Savini is involved with this. And I didn't know that because I hadn't seen the movie before. So I was pleasantly surprised by all of the things that he contributed to the movie. But one of the main things I want to talk about is the concept behind this movie, because for the majority of the movie, you are not seeing a killer. You are seeing the killings from the killer's perspective. And I think that's really clever, given that it sort of takes the horror genre and takes 
like what Halloween did and twists it in a slightly different way to give it this intensity that Halloween didn't necessarily have. Granted, Halloween is still intense because Michael Myers is creepy, but this was just a different kind of intensity, I guess. What's super fascinating about it is because, I mean, now we know Mrs. Voorhees is the killer in the first one. Jason doesn't really come in until the second one. But the movie, as it stood when it was released in 1980, was kind of like a murder mystery because you don't know. Like you said, it's an unknown killer. But it's not like a mystery you can solve based on clues or like it's one of the characters you knew. I mean, she's like referenced in passing, but there's no one in their right mind would guess it's Mrs. Voorhees. Yeah. So I think it's fascinating. And this is something I wanted to ask you about because this was your first time viewing. Like, did you know it wasn't Jason? Did you just did you assume it was Jason the whole time? And then were you surprised at the end? Because it actually makes the the murder mystery works better in hindsight than it did when it was first released now that we have the perspective of Jason being the killer in all these other movies. Yeah, I think I was a little confused, to be honest with you, because they do have a little bit of a misdirect, because Steve and Mrs. Voorhees have, like, the same exact Jeep. So then it's like, you know, Steve leaves, and you're just kind of like, okay, that's a very specific color Jeep, because it's not quite a normal blue. It's like a brighter tealish blue color. And then you see that Jeep again later. And then you see Mrs. Voorhees come up in a Jeep when the girl who's supposed to be the cook for the summer is hitchhiking her way to the lake. And I was just like, okay, that's interesting. So they let you believe it's someone else for at least a little bit, but then to have it be one, a woman instead of you know, this sort of giant menacing man, like Michael Myers, or even like Freddie, it was surprising. And I think I was definitely expecting it to be Jason because of that sort of, I guess, stereotype that, you know, these killers are these giant, like, deformed kind of looking people. Well, I mean, they definitely make up for for that in all the sequels where Jason is various forms of deformed. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, you're right. They do do that little misdirect there. But then once Steve's killed off, it's like, well, who could it possibly be? Yeah. (laughs) And again, it's not really, it's just a coincidence that they both drive the same Jeep, I guess, because again, Mrs. Voorhees is not a character until we meet her and she's identifies the killer like 30 seconds later. Yeah, because at first, was the cook's name Annie? Yes. Okay. There were so many people, I'm probably going to butcher (laughs) half of these names, but when Annie is in the Jeep, you never really see the driver. So they kind of use the reflection off of the windshield and stuff to not ever let you see that, you know, if it's a man or a woman driving the Jeep. And, you know, Jeeps are pretty common, so it's not so out there that two people couldn't have the same Jeep because I've seen people who have the same colored Jeep, at least, that I have all over the place. So it's pretty common. And I think that was a nice way to give you that misdirect. Yeah, no, I I agree. I actually never really thought about that that way, but that's a good point. Yeah, and overall, I think the fact that you have so many characters, it doesn't really matter how many people are there because when you have that opening scene, you only see the two people who get killed, and then you jump to the present day. So you kind of just know right off the bat that something bad happened at this place. And oh, no, here's a stupid person opening it back up. So you kind of know (laughs) to expect this sort of brutal massacre to happen. 
Yeah, I will say, I mean, now we certainly expect that, but Friday the 13th was one of the early examples. Like, it wasn't quite as tropey at the time. Granted, it it yeah. apes a lot on what Halloween did before it, and even Halloween was derivative of other movies. But at this time, Friday the 13th did kind of set the groundwork for not just all the sequels that came after, but also the slasher boom that, that took over in the early 80s there. Because not only did they... Did they ape on Halloween's suspense, but they also upped the gore to try to compete with Tom Savini's work in Friday the 13th. Let's talk about his work because it is fascinating. I had a bunch of extras on the Blu-ray that came in the box set, and I went through and I watched all of them (laughs) because I was like, I need to know more. And they give you you know, the insider info on how Tom Savini did a lot of the killings and the scene with Kevin Bacon in particular, you know, he's not actually laying in the bed. It's just his head that is sticking up through a hole. And then they sort of, you know, plastered his neck to the dummy body. And that's how they stuck the arrow up through him. And when you have practical effects like that, sometimes knowing how they did it, you can then go back and see, oh, okay, I can tell that's not really him. But the way Tom Savini went about a lot of these things, for the most part, in the moment, you couldn't tell. Yeah, I mean, he's he's a mad genius. I can't imagine seeing this like when it came out in 1980, because there really hadn't, at least not at this, at this level of popularity, I don't believe, been like a slasher type movie with this much gore. I mean, Savini had just done Dawn of the Dead, which has its fair share of of gory moments for sure. But I mean, that was at the hands of zombies. This is at, you know, a person who could be lurking outside in the woods at any time. So I got to imagine it was pretty effective at the time. And and they do still hold up. Like you said, you just watched the new Blu-ray, which has like a pretty decent transfer on it. And sometimes when these old movies are cleaned up, you start to see kind of like, you know, the edge work in the makeup and stuff like that. But I think this one and and pretty much everything Savini's done in in his golden era anyway, um, really holds up even after 40 years now. Yeah, especially the one where the girl took the axe to the head. And I was like, oh, that looks so good. (laughs) (laughs) So fun fact, the fourth Friday the 13th was supposed to be its subtitled the final chapter because it was going to be the last one and then it made a bunch of money and they kept making them. (laughs) But Savini came back to do part four and it also has some great effects in it. Oh, that's good to know. I have something to look forward to. I am more than likely going to just watch them in order because like I said, I have the first eight and then I did also buy Freddy versus Jason. So I have almost all of them, all but three, it seems like. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely sequential order is the way to go. Although I will say, unlike some of the other franchises, there's a slight continuity, but you could also pick up, you could watch, you know, part seven as your first one and still get the gist of it. Yeah. Especially because it's not necessarily tied to another character outside of Jason. Because, you know, with Halloween, you really have this thing between Michael Myers and Laurie Strode. And so she comes back multiple times. But in this, it feels like you don't necessarily need everyone to come back. And I know some people did for the second one. So it's one of those things where you're like, okay, Friday the 13th, expect a massacre. Great. Okay, we're good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They did try to, I think, I don't know, maybe they they saw how it worked for, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween. They did bring back the character of Tommy Jarvis, who, I mean, he doesn't come in until part four and he's played by Corey Feldman. 
But then he, he's in four, five, and six. Okay. Which is fun. It's fun to see the continuity. But there's a there's a big jump in time between each movie. So even still, if you popped in one at random, you'd you'd understand what's going on without much trouble. Yeah, for sure. And Adrian King, who played Alice, she was one of the characters who sort of kept to herself a little more than the rest. She wasn't necessarily going around and sneaking about and she was playing Strip Monopoly, which was clever because it wasn't strip poker. I was like, oh, that's new. (laughs) So you have this whole group of teenagers and they're sort of just randomly there. A few come together, most come by themselves, and you think that Alice and Steve are kind of going to have this thing at the beginning, but then she ends up being the final girl, which is certainly a horror trope, but it's one that I am perfectly okay with at this point. You know, you have Laurie Strode, you have her, you have many others, and it's just always interesting to see how these people are picked off. You know, you have some that happen off screen, because I think it was Ned, maybe, who was on the top bunk, dead on the top bunk above Kevin Bacon and his girlfriend's character. Yes, I, I believe that's Ned, yeah. And we never see that death, if I'm not mistaken. You just right. see him dead on the bunk above, and then you start to see all of the murders. So you kind of get this one moment where you're like, oh, okay, this is where everything's going to start going downhill. Yeah, I mean, you you mentioned the the abundance of characters, especially compared to something like a Halloween, where it's it's kind of just the three girls and Doctor Loomis. Obviously, there's other other victims along the way, but not that many. Yeah, when it came to Friday the Thirteenth and a lot of the derivative slashers, it was definitely people were there for the body count. Essentially, they're mm-hmm. they're little more than fodder to be killed, so it's very easy to kind of lose track of who's who or like. You'll notice a lot of characters aren't developed. They're pretty one-dimensional. It's just like, oh, there's the guy who likes to drink a lot or the girl who likes to have sex or, you know, they're just defined by one characteristic and it's usually that characteristic that gets them killed. Yeah, but for the genre, sometimes that works. You know, you don't want to get too invested in all of these characters who are going to die anyway, necessarily. But then sometimes you have those characters that sort of stand out a little more from the beginning and they work their way through things and Alice really seemed like one of the smartest ones you know she didn't really want to be left alone so she kept following Bill everywhere and even when she was left alone she was like okay I'm gonna rig the door so that it can open she like throws the rope over you know the beam in one of the cabins and then blocks it off and she's at least trying to do things that make sense which a lot of times in horror movies you will see what a character does and you're like well that wasn't a good idea (laughs) yeah no i agree i think she's a good final girl i like her and i like Ginny, who's the final girl in part two a lot because they both have this this sort of naturalistic quality to them where you you believe them but they're not stupid like you said they they make good decisions good choices smart decisions i should say You know, in certain movies, they'll be like, oh, you know, you didn't hear about this backstory, but this person, you know, grew up in a whatever. Their father was a hunter, so now they have all these crazy Rambo skills or or something like that. Or even Nightmare on Elm Street, Nancy does all the booby traps, and it's a little far-fetched. I appreciate a character like Alice who who is just, you know, a person with a brain. Yeah, and you can kind of see 
the wheels turning in her head as she's like, okay, what can I use? Okay, I'm going to grab a pan and smack Mrs. Voorhees over the head with it. The only thing that was a little disappointing was the fact that she didn't hit Mrs. Voorhees a second time to make sure she was actually (laughs) going to stay down because, man, that lady just kept getting back up and back up. And that kind of brings us to, you know, another great Tom Savini effect with the beheading. And that was just so good. <laughs> so, so good. Yeah, I'm sure you saw in, in one of the special features you watched, but uh, I think he says it in every interview he ever does about Friday the 13th, but those are Tom Savini's hands uh, being beheaded. So if you look real close, especially on the Blu-ray. He said it was one of his friends, actually, the one who had... Oh, does he? Okay. Maybe he has the knife. But in any event, the... Yeah, he he's the knife killer. Okay, that's what it is. Yeah. But if you look at the hands, they're unusually hairy for Mrs. Voorhees versus the rest of the movie. You know, I actually couldn't tell that much with the Blu-ray version, so maybe that's something they kind of cleaned up. Yeah, yeah, very well could be. Because my mom was like, wait, go back and pause it. I was like, I don't see it either. (laughs) (laughs) But I understand, you know, that at the time, it certainly would have been more noticeable. But at the same time, the head just looks so real. And you have to give Tom Savini and the crew props for being able to pull something like that off in 1980. You know, it's not like you had a ton of options for the way you could behead someone. It's not like CGI was going to be an option that would actually look good then or that you could even do then. Yeah, and it like you said, it holds up and it's in slow motion. And it's kind of, it's actually kind of gratuitous slow motion. But in slow motion, you should be able to see the faults even more in theory, but it's it's so well done, you really don't. Yeah, I don't even think I noticed the little toothpicks that he mentioned that were holding the head together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, unless you're looking for these things. I mean, you wouldn't pick up on them. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think one of the things that impressed me the most about this, aside from the gore effects, was how they used the music in this and this was one of the extras too but you kind of get a sound a little similar to this whenever you know someone's going to die so it's very (laughs) direct it's like the music only is present when the killer is present whether or not it's while a killing is happening or you know the moments before like when steve comes back in his jeep and there's just this bright light in his eyes right by the sign and he sort of starts this conversation and then gets a little closer and then you get the death yeah i mean i think he kind of picked up on what uh, harry manfredini who did the score for this kind of picked up on what john carpenter did for halloween uh granted carpenter's was all synthesizer and i think harry manfredini had an orchestra but the the basics are still the same there where you use the score to build suspense and otherwise it's relatively minimal And I think it's super effective. Harry Manfredini, like I mentioned before, he did the score for the majority of these movies. Okay. He kind of, I don't want to say a one-trick pony, but all of his scores are very similar to one another, which in general might not be the best in terms of like wanting a diverse career and not being typecast. But because it's so effective in Friday the 13th, it's just as effective in Friday the 13th part six or whatever, you know? He even talked about in one of the extras that I watched how he knew that there were specific moments where there easily could have been musical cues, like when Steve goes to leave and sort of puts his hand on Alice's cheek and then walks away, and it's sort of like this romantic kind of moment that would normally call for some underlying music, but he was like, 
I just ignored all of those. All of the other music cues that were visually there, I just let those go so we could just keep it to the killings. And that is certainly a choice. And like you said, it limits a little of the kind of movies you're going to do. You know, he's not going to be doing any of the superhero movies or anything like that because those scores are a little more dynamic as far as the different types of moments that call for music. But with this, it was just so effective because even though anyone who has watched numerous horror movies would know, if there is that sort of high-pitched kind of music, something bad is about to happen. Yes, absolutely. It's something I've certainly noticed more and more doing Chat Cemetery because you have the really, really good adaptations with the much better composers, and then you have like the TV <laughs> movies. And it's not that any particular person is bad at their job. It's probably more of a budget thing than anything else. And the tools that are available to you for TV movies versus, you know, these bigger budget movies, especially now, like with the It remakes and Dr. Sleep, you know, obviously those are going to be done at a much higher caliber for the whole presentation. So you can expect better soundtracks in those than you can in like the golden years or something, because that's just how it's going to go. Yeah, I think it definitely comes down to resources. But a lot of times, kind of the the lack of resources breed creativity. Like you said, those I mean, those moments where they keep the score quiet, for example, when they could have added score. Like, like that's a choice, a very deliberate one, and, and it pays off. It really does. I want to get your opinion on Jason's story in this, because really, Jason only exists as sort of this figment of our imagination, because all we know about him is what Mrs. Voorhees tells the characters and Obviously, that's mostly told to Alice on how she let Jason die and he drowned in the lake. And we get a glimpse of him at the end when Alice is in the boat, but you really don't know what is the truth about what happened to Jason because by the end of it, Mrs. Voorhees is not a believable storyteller. Yeah, and it actually, taken as a whole, the story, you can kind of play it ambiguous but once the sequels come in it's it's kind of thrown out the window anyway because all of a sudden jason not only exists but is an adult a full-grown man uh and what we see at the lake at the end is you know this little boy who you know may or may not exist depending on how you interpret that very ending so so it's interesting i i'd be curious to hear your perspective because you haven't you know it hasn't been muddied by the sequels it's funny now because he's this icon of the genre but in terms of the original script he's just kind of a macguffin he's just you know a boogeyman kind of campfire tale and he's not the killer it's not about him he's just there to get people scared and anxious and then mrs Voorhees comes in and kind of does the job It was one of those things where, because I am familiar with a lot of these iconic horror characters, regardless of whether or not I've seen the movies, I was like, okay, dude in a hockey mask, I know that's Jason, (laughs) you know? (laughs) I know what Freddy looked like before I watched Nightmare on Elm Street all the way through. I knew what Michael Myers looked like for years. And you just have these characters that sort of transcend the movies that they're in. And so, for me to watch this and have him be some, like, deformed boy in the water who isn't 
really there because it's kind of like Alice is dreaming more so than it actually happening to her in real life because none of the cops saw Jason. So you get this character that I knew so much about not having watched the movies and then it turns out his mother is the killer and you aren't really entirely sure if he's even real. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that they weren't expecting this to become a franchise. I think if you just take a look at this movie singularly instead of as a whole, you do have a story that is horrific and you have sort of this delusional killer and you can't really believe anything she says. So to have Jason not be prominent in this movie, but then go on to be the face of the franchise, I was like, oh, that is certainly interesting. And I wonder what the thinking was behind, you know, the next movie and when he's an adult and everything. So that'll be interesting for me to go and watch the second one in particular it, to see kind of how they bring Jason to life, I guess. <laughs> well, uh, spoiler alert, but they didn't put a lot of thought or effort into it. I will okay. say that. <laughs> uh, but you're right. I mean, taken, taken singularly as just this movie, it, it's pretty well done in that they have, you know, Mrs. Voorhees as the killer. You know that. She's killed, so the movie's wrapped up, you know, in a neat little package. But then you get that kind of postscript at the end where... You know, I think the last line is like, oh, then he's still out there yeah. in the lake. So it's a good, like, you know, which I mean, horror movies still do to this day, where it's like you get what you think is the conclusion of the story, but then right before the credits roll, it's like, wait, they're still out there. Or in the case of the most recent Halloween, it's in a post-credits scene that isn't really a scene. <laughs> <laughs> yes, whatever gets people to think, like, you know, a little on edge on the drive home. Yeah, so it really was a story that ended up being contained but as far as jason's part of the story there's so many unknowns still you're like okay one is this kid real you have to believe that mrs Voorhees wouldn't be doing this if she hadn't actually lost her son because then you don't really have any sort of trigger for why she returned to this place in particular yeah i i never really in uh, interpreted that she's definitely i mean an unreliable narrator but I didn't think that she was necessarily lying about Jason, but certainly you're right about, you know, she lost him, but did he actually drown or not? I yeah. mean, he does come back in the sequel, so maybe not. I will say, though, when he jumps out of the lake, that jump scare at the end, is it's one of my favorite jump scares in horror. I think it's so effective the way it is that one tender piece of music playing over. It's a very serene scene of her kind of gliding across the lake, like, you know, the nightmare's over the next morning, and then Jason just jumps out. Um, I know they've said it's it was kind of modeled after the very end of Carrie uh, when she reaches up out of the grave, which yeah. is also super effective. But I remember when I saw Friday the 13th for the first time as like a teenager, just jumping out of my skin at that scene. You can definitely tell what movies this sort of drew influences from because there aren't, by this time, a ton of major, major horror movies that have really hit theaters in quite the same way because this had a budget of roughly half a million and it went on to make almost 60 million and that's not even counting like all of these new blu-ray releases the box sets and all of the you know home box office kind of stuff oh yeah now it's uh i mean i don't know how familiar you are with the ongoing saga of Friday the 13th now, but the director, Sean Cunningham, who is also the producer, is in a legal battle with the writer of the first movie, Victor Miller, about who actually created Friday the 13th and who is owed, you know, is the writer owed 
owed rights or was he just paid one lump sum for his work and that's it so the reason we haven't been able to get a friday 13th movie in the last few years is because of this ongoing legal battle that you know you can't make one until it's cleared up oh that's interesting i did not know that and it's one of those things that seems to happen a lot especially you know like back when comic books were first starting to be big you see a lot of people who helped create these big characters like batman you know Bill Finger wasn't credited for a very long time, and his family had to fight to get his name put on the movies, on the comics, and all sorts of things. And it's really sad when you see things like that happen, because you enjoy something so much, and then you realize, oh, hey, this really, really crappy thing happened, though, because of this franchise or this character, and people can't agree on who took part in what, and you know, because they didn't plan on any sequels after this one, I think that sort of just amplifies it because then you see how big a franchise has become. So then, you know, maybe a work for hire no longer seems fair. Yeah. I mean, back in 1980, the only way to see a film was pretty much to go to a theater and see it. And I mean, Friday the 13th played drive-ins for like a year anyway. But beyond that, I mean, there was little chance at that time that it was ever going to play you know, on television, yeah, it was too bloody and, and violent for that. And there wasn't, I mean, VHS was like just starting out, but people didn't have them in their homes really at that point. Uh, you're right. I'm sure, I'm sure at the time it seemed like a good deal that the writer just got this lump sum, but now he's like, well, wait, you've turned this into, you know, a multi-million dollar franchise all based on the work that I did. So, I mean, I don't blame him. I hope, I hope he gets the rights or, you know, he gets some money because I definitely think it's owed to him after 40 years now. Yeah, work for hire is one of those things that's always touchy, especially for creatives. You know, it's not like you were being hired to fix someone's plumbing. (laughs) You know, these things are going to live on much longer than a lot of us will, to be honest. You know, who knows how many generations are going to watch Halloween and Friday the 13th. So, when you have these box office royalty disputes, you're kind of like, oh, well, this is kind of leaving a sour taste in my mouth. But as someone who has really been wanting to catch up on a lot of 80s, 90s movies that I just never watched for one reason or another. I'm obviously going to continue watching them because I already bought them. So, you know, it's like they already have my whatever small percentage (laughs) Amazon gives them for buying that. But it's one of those things where you do feel bad for the creators because you're like, really, just give them credit. It's not that big of a decision. It's like, if they did the work, just give them credit. It's It should be a pretty black and white thing. Yeah, I mean, hopefully it can be resolved. Um, we are currently in the longest stretch there's ever been without a Friday the 13th movie. Uh, we're now over 10 years. So uh, the fans are certainly hungry for it. I don't see why they can't come to some... I mean, it's easy for me to say, but I hope they can come to some sort of agreement where, you know, everyone wins. Like, there's no reason they can't share profits. There's plenty of of money to be made. So hopefully we see that sooner rather than later. We'll just yell at them from quarantine to tell them (laughs) to just you know, get on with it so we can enjoy more Friday the 13th movies. But speaking of that, do you feel like this is something Blumhouse would also get into? Or are you kind of not wanting it in the same world as Halloween right now? I've heard that Blumhouse like has interest in it if it were a possibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've said, you know, right now it is not even a possibility. But I do, I trust them. I think they did an admirable job with Halloween, um, and I would love to see them do similar 
thing with Friday the 13th. I don't think it would necessarily work to go, you know, bring back anyone from the first one, but I think they could do a route where it's like similar. I know you haven't seen it yet, but what they did to the Friday the 13th remake, where it was like, it almost kind of felt like a sequel in a world where you didn't have to see any of the other movies, Okay, which I thought was very smart. So I'd love to see them kind of do that again, because the remake to this one was actually quite good in my opinion. Okay, that's good to know. So that one came out in about 2009, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so that is definitely quite the wait for, you know, another Friday the 13th movie if it's been quite a while. So you have these franchises that seemingly can never end because they're always finding ways to reboot it or, you know, you could even possibly with Jason pass the torch to someone else because it's a person behind a hockey mask. It doesn't necessarily need to be Jason, but that's always, you know, I'm sure a big heated debate between horror fans, what ones you can like sort of pass the torch on and what ones you can't. But <laughs> Talk to me after you watch the sequels. Okay. We'll, re- we'll revisit that statement. <laughs> okay. So maybe I'm <laughs> on to something here. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to talk about regarding the first movie, though? I would love to hear since I think you've only seen most of the originals and not most of the sequels, I should say. Correct. How would you rank Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, and Halloween? Oh, man. I think Halloween is still my favorite so far, mostly because I've seen that and I've seen the most recent one. I've probably seen clips here and there of everything in between, but I've seen two Halloweens and one of each for Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, but I, man, I don't know. I think this just based on the concept might pull ahead of a nightmare on elm street for me that's fair enough i go halloween elm street friday 13th personally but i I think they're all fun um i think what you'll find watching through the friday 13th movies is it's very consistent and that's something you can't say about the other two franchises those have pretty high highs and very low lows whereas friday 13th like even the the lesser ones they're still, I mean, it's still a Friday the 13th movie at its core. You're still getting Jason yeah. killing, you know, camp, camp counselors. I might have to rescind that, though, because I think in order of rankings, it would be the same as yours. Okay, okay. But I find, I think I find the Friday the 13th concept the most interesting as far as not showing you the killer, but then just the execution on the original Halloween and the original Nightmare on Elm Street it set the bar so high with those two that it's kind of like everything that came after those. And, you know, you have like your prom nights, maniac, some of these, I haven't watched all of those, but it's one of those things where you can tell that Halloween especially set the bar for what a slasher movie should be. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think a big difference in those is that John Carpenter for Halloween and Wes Craven for Nightmare on Elm Street, they're both visionary filmmakers i mean even if you remove those two films from their filmography they have other like straight up classics in their their filmography um it's not like it was just a fluke whereas if you look at sean cunningham who made friday the 13th he's predominantly a producer he's directed a few other movies a couple of cult classics but nothing you know near the level of friday the 13th which i think was i mean it's good it's a good movie but mm-hmm. the success of it was a lot of just kind of dumb luck in the right place at the right time i think he also admits that he was sort of just hopping on the horror train and it wasn't really something that he was like super, super into. But I recently watched The Fog from John Carpenter and I was like, okay, this guy, he gets horror. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, not to get too off topic here. I mean, I've never seen a stretch of films that are like all classic that that beats John Carpenter's like from 78 to like mid to late 80s. He just put out like six films that are all like for what they are, like you couldn't ask for better. Oh, absolutely. And I think Friday the 13th does have something good going for it with this first one. It was just one of those where you could tell that, you know, not as much of the story, the backstory anyway, was there. With Halloween, you have the backstory. You understand why Michael Myers is in the place he's in. And then he escapes and he goes after one specific person. I mean, he granted, he does kill others, but you really get a more full story with Halloween. I feel like this, you're kind of like, okay, we kind of believe Mrs. Voorhees, but then we don't really know what's going on with Jason and if he's actually dead. And if he is, did he become a fish and lives <laughs> underwater? <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree. I'm, when you look at it, you know, beyond the the first person point of view of the killer, which is great, it's kind of a threadbare plot. Not so much at its time, but certainly looking back on it, you see like, you know, the one dimensional characters, everyone's kind of there just to get killed off. But because of that, I think the, the franchise as a whole, Friday the 13th, like I said, doesn't necessarily have the ups and downs of the other ones. So it's kind of like a, it's a comfort food for me, at least okay. kind of movie, um, which I know is weird about a bunch of people getting killed. But yeah, it's one of those things like, you know what to expect, whether you've seen, you know, one of them, or you've seen all of them 100 times, you can just kind of put them on and just kind of have mindless entertainment. Yeah. And sometimes that's all you want out of a horror movie. So it wasn't that I didn't like this one, because I certainly had a good time watching it. I ended up giving it a three and a half out of five. And I think Halloween is probably, you know, five out of five. Nightmare was four and a half out of five, if I'm remembering those correctly. Yeah, I think I, mine were roughly the same. And I'd probably do a three and a half for Friday the 13th as well. Yeah, so I am definitely looking forward to checking out more of them. I'll have to keep you updated on my progress because, you know, if if we do an episode on every single one, we'll have to spread them out a little because that's a lot. And, <laughs> you know, I don't know how many people want to listen to like 10 Friday the 13th episodes in a row. <laughs> well, if you want to watch all of them, we can do like an all-encompassing, you know, your overview of the series, maybe. Fair. <laughs> that is an option. I'll definitely let you know, though, and keep you updated. So, Alex, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Friday the 13th. Uh, thank you for having me. You can follow me at Alex's Legend on Twitter, and you can check out my website, BrokeHorrorFan.com. We're also BrokeHorrorFan on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You should all definitely do that. Cool. Thank you. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of Welcome to Geekdom. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so through our Patreon. You can sign up for a dollar a month. That'll get you a thank you on the show. $2 a month, you get to pick a topic that myself and a guest will discuss on the show. For $5 a month, you can join the Welcome to Geekdom Slack group, where you can talk to myself and various guests who have been on the show. If you want to follow us on socials, you can do so at GeekdomPod on Twitter and at Welcome to Geekdom on Instagram and Facebook. If you feel inclined, please do give us a review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. It really does help the show. And as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.